and welcome to episode two of Bellingham's Story Hour. This episode is a collection of stories from our live story shares that have taken place over the past several months. And this collection we are titling Travel on Land and Sea. And technically, I think the travel is on land and rivers. Mm. On land and water? On land and water? Water. On oh. earth and water. By land and Ooh, by why sea. why didn't we get earth and water? It's earth very and water. And speaking of land, we'd like to acknowledge the Nooksack, Lummi, and Coast Salish tribes whose land we are seated on right now. Our first story takes place on water. This is Objects Are Closer Than They Appear from Beth Kerr. I'm from the Midwest, and in the Midwest, there is no end of the unique, special individuals that kind of cross your path. And this is kind of a story of both no thank you to those individuals and as well um, kind of the people you just run across in your day-to-day life. So my friend and I, AJ, AJ's about 5'8". She's uh, androgynous as the day is long. Um, And it is springtime. And what we do in the spring, early spring, is we start to scout the rivers we want to canoe for the rest of the summer. And so what we do when we scout is we go over every bridge viaduct and we say, hey, is it like 10 feet down, straight down, or, you know, do we have to slide down on the canoe, or is it walkable? Or is, you know, is there a bunch of nettle branches from last year that have now, um, you know, overwintered, and you're like, that would be terrible to take out when you're canoeing. So so we're out here, and, and we're in northeast Iowa, Northeast corner, very beautiful. Very, it's bucolic there. Um, high, bluffy limestone cliffs, beautiful, like, 300-acre, you know, farms with the red barn and this beautiful trout stream that runs through it called the Yellow River, and that's what we're scouting. And so we're out there scouting it, and this might have been about 20 years ago, and this was not an area where you would still have cell service. It's still kind of like, yeah, you know, the farmers didn't need it. You know, they have their two-way radios and, you know, special special way to call from the cab back to the, the house if they need to. So we're out there scouting, and we have what's called a gazette. If you know what a gazette is, it's an 11 by 17 high-density map of your area, each by each county, right? So it's about 50 pages long for every state. And so you get the roads that are, you know, kind of like one of those wilderness maps that you would get. And so we're coming up, my friend and I are out, AJ, and we're looking, and she goes, take the left of the chicken foot ahead of us. And so I'm like, chicken foot? And I had to hold my hand up because she's holding her hand up. I'm like, oh, it's a chicken foot. Take the left, take the left turn coming up. Okay. And so these are like small roads. They're, they're mapped out, and they're in like really light color black, not like interstates are, you know, heavy colors, and we're down to the very lightest just before the dotted lines, which means that's, that's not really a road. And so as we take this chicken foot, and I'm in my Jeep with her, and I, we take the corner, and the first thing I see is I see this kind of looks like a junkyard, but kind of not. So somebody has taken cars down about two blocks both ways, parked them as close as possibly together with these trees that are growing up, and they're like six to eight inches in diameter. So these cars have been there a while. Now, you couldn't shimmy through this. They have made this as their fence. And, and so, you know, it's like overgrown. And I can see back, there's a tar paper shack in the back. And then there's a, a, a bus attached to it. And they have tarred over the bus, too. So it's kind of like a durable habit trail back in there. But you're really not sure what's going on. And so, but realize, we're coming out of all these bucolic farms. 
And so this is like out in the middle of nowhere. You're what's this? And so we're, uh, we're wide-eyed. And then we see the gate. There's a gate. Has a has a big, heavy cable across it. it. says, government agents and others not welcome. Republic of Iowa. <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh, oh. And so I'm reading this. I'm turning the corner going, oh, no thank you. I don't want anything to do with this. And right in front of me is the guy who owns the place. And he's a lot six foot two. And he looks like he's like from Flanders or Belgium. He's got this massive head. And he's got a pair of bib overalls. He's got one of them that's not even hooked. It's just kind of hanging, dangling there. Right? And he's looking. He's got this big flat forehead. And he's looking at me. And I'm like, oh, no. And he's unloading more stuff onto his makeshift fence. Right? So you can't. It, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, apparently. And from around his little minivan as he's unloading this, he's got a dog looking out. And it's got one eye. It's like looking out behind the wheel at me. And I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> we don't want to get any place close to this. So, so that was the first part of the trip. And, and so we said, we're not going to put in any place close to here. But that seems like some place we should avoid. And so now comes the fall. We come to the fall because now we want to actually canoe this river. And so we take our cars down. We're actually taking out on the Mississippi River. We go upstream. We put in. We put in, and we come around the first or second big bend, and it's, all right, it's late in the fall. We're having this Indian summer. It's 75 degrees, but there is no leaves on the trees. It's hunting season. And so we come around this corner, and there's this troop of guys on this big outside bend, and they have the whole thing. There's like, I don't know, like six or seven campers in there, and it's 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's like, and they're drinking by the fire. Right? <laughs> and so I'm like, hmm. And they're like, hey, ladies, where are you getting out? I'm not kidding you. That's exactly how they talk. <laughs> and I looked up. I didn't even bat an eyebrow. And I looked at them. I was like, New Orleans. And so, so we continued to paddle along, right? And we're like, oh, no, thank you. No, thank you on that one either. So we camp for the night. Everything's fine and well. It's another beautiful day the next day. So we get up. We're fishing. You know, we usually don't bring any food with us. We just gather what we can find and then what do we fish for? And we don't see anybody. We don't see any houses. It's just bucolic and 75 degrees and no mosquitoes, which is unusual for the upper Midwest, let me tell you. So all of a sudden, there's this gal out of nowhere in this small kayak, the blonde bombshell. And she's like, hey, but I know anyone else was out here. Do you want a beer? Yet, and so I look over, and she has an entire, like, 20 or 40 pounds of ice between her legs, and the whole thing stuffed with beer, like she's having a party all by herself. <laughs> so, and so we start talking with her. Her name's Wendy. Very nice lady, Wendy. And so, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, my husband and I are out here. We're, we're paddling, you know, kayaking today. I'm like, oh, cool. And somebody comes around the bend, and so I say, hey, is that your husband? She goes, no, that's my boyfriend. My husband's still coming. Okay, I didn't know how to, and she's stone-faced, I don't know how to take this, we're just, it's us and them on the river, okay, and so yeah, I have a beer, and then she's like, you know, when you guys camp tonight, we're taking care of the ion exchange, you know, for our friends, 
don't don't go downstream because another you know it's like six foot high you know uh, nettles the rest of the way after the ion exchange. Just you know just come and camp at the campground with us. Now after the experience with the guys and the man, we're not really sure like that's a good idea. So they go on ahead, right? Her boyfriend, her husband, and and Wendy. And so she says, I'll tie a bag out in front. So you only know where to stop if you want to stop and camp with us. Okay, so I talked to my friend AJ. I'm like, hey, they seem like they're okay. Let's camp with them. So we get on down there, and she's telling a story. She's telling a story about the river people, which apparently were us that she met on the river, right? And, but I'm, we're listening to it. They can't hear that we've kind of crept up the river bank. And so from one side of the, the trailer, one of us jumps out and goes, river person number one. And I would go to the other side of the trailer, and I jump out, river person number two. So that's how we introduced ourselves to the Ion Exchange and these people. And so, we, and so instead of being a, oh, no, thank you, it was, oh, no, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to the campsite tonight. And so we talked with them for a while, and they said, huh, yeah, that person you met? That, that big guy back there on the, the first, you know, when you were scouting? Oh, his name is Goatman. I'm like, oh? Yeah, he was on American Pickers. They picked up a 1963 Vespa from the inside of, the, of all the cars, and it was on the show, and they sold it. I, I don't, it, it actually was. I did go back and look at the episode, but I can't remember which episode it was. And so as we have this beautiful dinner with these new friends, and... We are laying in bed after that, or laying in our tent, and my friend AJ looks over at me and says, can we make the most of a day or what? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This story is from J.C. Coughlin, titled Too Much of an Adventure comma, running scared. Yeah, when I was in my early 20s, I was a college student and studying engineering, had a little bit of a young life crisis and felt like I needed to reassess my life path. And so I spent a semester in New Zealand, um, which was a really nice opportunity to do some soul searching. And during that time, I met another fellow American, grew up in New England like me, uh, lost soul, and we really bonded over the outdoors. I had started getting into backpacking during my time in New Zealand, and I just loved the sense of adventure that it brought and the freedom. And New Zealand's also wonderfully set up for spending time in the outdoors, and there's nice cabins along the trails. So we would backpack together over the six months, and towards the end of our time, his name was Sean, my friend, and there was a building energy of, like, how much of an adventure can we do together Uh, through this lens of, I think, both of us trying to prove ourselves to one another as well as to ourselves. And uh, so we mapped out this route that went into... uh, not very well visited uh, mountain valley and it was kind of like the chicken foot that was described where there was one river and then it reached a fork and so we had noticed that there was a small cabin at 
both ends of the forks, and there was what looked like on the map a nice ridgeline traverse that would connect the two cabins. Um, and I look back on this and just laugh because we were so naive. Both of I remember sitting in the dorm looking at the map together and seeing the topo lines on the ridge line, and we're like, hmm, those look pretty close together. But we grew up in New England, and when the topo lines are close together in New England, it's pretty much fine. Uh, <laughs> And so we start on this trip, and we budgeted 10 days for it. And we spent two days, I think, getting into the first cabin. And many of the cabins we'd stayed in in New Zealand were really impressive in their quality of construction and their, like, number of beds, and they were so cozy. We get to this cabin, and it's pretty much like a rundown shack that's half falling apart. Uh, and we get the door open, we're like, wow. No one's been here for a long time. There's two, like, misshapen bunk beds and a tiny little fireplace. We're like, okay, this is a good start to the adventure. Um, And we make ourselves at home. It starts raining out, and I never brought a book with me because I was too frugal on weight. Um, And I would often find books in the cabin, and this cabin happened to have a really nice uh, adventure novel that I quickly fell in love with as the rain was coming down. And Sean's talking about plans for the morning. He's like, oh, we got to get up super early, like break at dawn to get out there and start this ridge route. We have no idea what we're going to find. I'm like, ah, it's so cozy. Do you think we could maybe leave at like nine? He's like, I was thinking four. (laughs) Like, okay, uh, can we compromise at six? And uh, yeah, so we settled in for the night with that being our compromise. And we get up in the morning. It is still pouring outside. And uh, from this point on, there's no map on or there's no trail on the map. It's just pure bushwhacking at what we've estimated might be four days to complete the journey to the next hut. And so we're looking at the first climb that we need to do, and it's just all trees. Um, And again, the top of the line, the lines are very close together, but we're like, trees, it must not be that steep. (laughs) And so we start going, and it quickly turns into what feels like a Tarzan adventure, where there's like it's very dense foliage, and there's vines growing. Um, so we're climbing up, and I'm like, oh, this is really fun. It's kind of like rock climbing with the trees. And it actually felt pretty safe. Because you're like, well, if you fall, there's such dense trees below me that I'm only going to roll, like, maybe (laughs) 10 feet down, and then I'll be caught by something. Uh, And uh, I was kind of having fun, even though it was raining a lot and I was getting very wet. Um, But then that adventure ended, and we got to uh, where Above Treeline started. And... uh, as soon as we came out of treeline, it was so windy and very dense fog um, that it started to make me a little bit nervous because I was like, oh, this is feeling very adventurous. I don't know where we're going. I can't really see anything. And um, I guess we'll just keep going uphill uh, because... <laughs> 
we knew we needed to go in that direction. So we started walking uphill on this ridge line, and, you know, there's no trails. There's maybe a mild animal path. Um, and it was nice because the clouds started to break. And as the clouds started to break, we could see the cirque that was created by the ridge line. And I just kept feeling more and more terror building inside of me as I'm looking around and those very steep topo lines are like clear cliff faces uh, that look like it would only be safe to go up or down if you have ropes and harnesses and helmets other gear that we don't have Um, and I'm starting to talk to my friend Sean I'm like Sean how are you feeling about this he's like oh it's fine I mean it looks really steep but as long as we stay right on the top we'll be safe (laughs) We don't need to go down for anything. <laughs> I'm like, well, we have two liters of water, so where are we camping tonight? <laughs> and what are we drinking? And I, I start to realize that I'm having a little bit of disassociation. Like, part of me is realizing the insanity of this plan. Like, it's a 30-mile traverse to the next cabin, and I'm trying to point out the errors in our plans to Sean of like we didn't bring enough water for this uh we don't know where we're camping the weather's pretty bad it's not that warm about out and we have very lightweight bivy gear like not mountaineering grade gear um and Sean is just feeling so confident and I look back on this I'm like I bet Sean also is freaking out inside but he was projecting an air of confidence to try to like will us into it mutually um and uh, so I felt like I'd tried this subtle strategy and it hadn't worked and then I was reflecting it back on myself, and I was like, okay, no, I just got to get stoked about this. Like, if I get stoked enough, then we will be fine. And we, you can do anything, right? Those are all the adventure novels. Like, if you put your mind to it, you can succeed. So I go through that thought loop for maybe 15 minutes, half an hour, and I just notice that I'm starting to get increasingly slower in my pace, and then I start crying. <laughs> Because we, instead of now there being like 10 feet of flat around us, it's creeping in and we're at like four feet. And I can see ahead and it just keeps getting narrower and narrower. And I'm like, Sean, and I was so scared. I think I said no. I was like, Sean, I can't do this. Like, you can go on, and I can't. And I was just bawling as I was telling him this because I was so afraid of what that meant about me. And um, I, it was a really hard conversation because Sean just very much wanted to continue and really tried to argue me into continuing. I was just like, no, I cannot do it like i will be reading my book in the cabin and that's what i'm doing and if you want to continue you can but i will not be coming back to search for you (laughs) so you're out here on your own and if search and rescue comes i'll tell them where you went but i'm not coming after you uh and sean did agree to turn around and he was so pissed at me and that's where the running scared comes in because i feel like due to the energy of us being together and just the fear i'd felt at seeing this route i 
returning and going down through the steep forest jungle. It was like a half run back to the cabin. And I felt so safe and relieved when we got back. Um, And we spent, I think, two days there because Sean kept trying to convince me that there would be a weather break and we should try it again when the weather's sunny. (laughs) I was like, no, the weather's not going to make a difference. Uh, But he finally gave up reluctantly and we continued on trail to the next cabin. It was an awkward couple more days together and I wish that we'd had the communication skills to really talk about what had happened but like many young males we just kind of buried our feelings and uh, tried to act tough and we're definitely grumpy with one another Uh, and the turning point for me was that on like day eight as we were walking out Sean very quietly he said to me he was like you know JC you made the right decision. He's like, I hate to admit it, but you're right. That was a really dumb idea that we came up with together. And I'm glad you had the awareness to not let us continue. Thank you. This next story is from Ramona Abbott. When I was a senior in high school, my mother's house rule was, please, you and your friends don't drop acid here at the apartment. (laughs) Those were slightly different times. When I was 20, I had an apartment overlooking a golf course in Tukwila, and I highly recommend that experience because you have a beautiful, beautiful yard that someone else takes care of. Really very, very nice. So 20 years old, living the high life without a lot of money, and a good friend of mine is staying with me, and it is a Friday night after a long week of work, and we decide to uh, frolic a bit, shall we say, as one did in those times. So some alcohol was consumed, some marijuana was smoked, some acid was dropped, as one did back then. And we decided, or rather, my friend, we'll call him Bill, we decided that this would be the perfect night to take a walk on the golf course because it's beautiful and it's lovely and we should be with nature. And I said, well, okay, we can be with nature, but we need all of our supplies and our things. So he made sure he had his beer with him. And this is the era where uh, the rolling papers that were colored and flavored had just come out. So I had neon yellow uh, uh, lemon-flavored rolling papers. And I rolled a fatty, like, bigger than my fist, practically. That was my supplies. And we got in his car and we drove down to the golf course. It is probably, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning-ish. We're going to walk on the golf course and it's going to be so lovely. And just as we pulled up and parked, my friend Bill took his beer and put it on the dash of the car. And up comes some lights because somebody else is coming to walk on the golf course too. How fun this will be. Until the red and blue flashers began. Now, I'm just going to say this. If you are tripping, red and blue flashers 
do not add to the experience. They do, however, sober you up very, very quickly. Very quickly. So now we are like this. Here we are, just totally busted. So they have pulled up here, the lights, etc. They get out, they start shining, you know, the lights in our eyes. My friend Bill, they're like, what are you hiding over there? He's like, it's not hidden. It's a beer. It's open. It's on the dashboard. Nothing hidden here. So they're grilling us and grilling us. What are you going to do? I said, well, we want to, it's a lovely evening. The moon is out. We want to take a walk on the golf course. It'll be beautiful. Did you know that walking on the golf course is a felony? No. No, we did not. And if we had known, we would most certainly not be doing something like this. But we did not know this. And we were just thought we'd go out for a stroll. So thank you. I'm over-talking at the moment and trying to be charming and doing all the things that have gotten me out of every traffic ticket at that point in my life I'd ever gotten near to. And I kept saying, thank you so much for telling us that it was a felony so that we did not commit a felony, so that we did not commit a crime, and that we didn't do anything wrong. Let us assess for one moment. That might have been over-speaking. We have two underage people, open container, in the car, in the middle of the night, on private property, <clears throat> which apparently is a felony. So they're grilling us, doing all of this. And finally, I think basically they were just having sport with us because at this point in about 1980, Friday night in Tukwila was not exactly a happening thing. So I don't think they had a lot to do. And they were like, let's just terrorize these two for a while and see what happens. So, you know, doing all things and all the questions and et cetera. And they say, you know, finally they say, okay, where do you live? And we said, just up the hill, four or five blocks, so close you can see it from here. Look, there's the window. It's right there. And they say, they do a little with each other. And one of the cops shines his big light straight in my eyes, checking for whatever, obviously, and says to me, so, do you think you can drive? Well, (laughs) in this scenario, there is only one correct answer to that question. And that answer is, yes, sir, I most completely can. I am going to be the best driver that you ever saw. Yes, I am. So he says, then fine, you get out and you drive. Well, I still have a gigantic neon yellow fatty in my right hand. (laughs) Now, we're close to getting out of a really rocky situation. And I have that, and I have their headlights on my side, so that the moment I open this door... Well, Jig's going to be up, because that's going to be really obvious. I can't do anything. I can't move suddenly. I can't drop it, because when I open it, it will still show. So luckily, cuffs were in vogue at the time, and I had cuffs in my pants, and I set up a silent prayer to every god of foolish young people everywhere, and I dropped that joint very carefully, hoped for the best. The cop said, okay, you get out, you drive. Sir, you get in the car here. I gently got out. I don't know, those gods were listening. The joint landed perfectly in the cuff, did not come out, was not visible. I got around the car, got in, Bill gets around, gets in. We are close to home free, but oh, our troubles are not yet over. No, they are not. Because we are also young and poor, and our cars have quirks because we don't have any money. So his trusty Volvo 
has a, a charming quirk, and that is that the driver's seat does not adjust at all. It does not move, and Bill is 10 inches taller than I am. So the only way I can help to maneuver the stick shift car is to butt forward, scoochy scooch, hold on to the driver of the steering wheel with every force I have to try to make my feet reach the pedals. Which leaves me no appendages to use for the stick shift. And my friend Bill says, that's okay, I'll do that part. (laughs) We now have two people tripping on acid and other substances. Driving an ancient Volvo together, <laughs> counting aloud, first gear, one, two, three, shift, <laughs> second gear, one, two, three, shift, Whoop, that was too much, one, two, three, down, with the policeman following us <laughs> up the hill. We made it, obviously, alive, we did not end up in jail. Now, my mother's advice and words of wisdom have stood me well my entire life and I have almost always followed them but I'm going to temper that one a little bit and say should you ever choose to try hallucinogens I'm going to suggest trying them from the safety of your own home This next story is from Julia George, and it's titled The Magic Skagit. Nothing good ever happens when somebody tries to say, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, I promise, everything will be okay. And that somebody was my friend Zeke. And I met Zeke through the tra- through trail crew, through the Pacific Northwest Trails Association. And that's located in Cedro Woolley. And we spent the summer together, and I was head over heels for this man. He, and I, you know, it wasn't the long, matty braided hair that had the climber dirt bag look and the curly mustache. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was his heart and his enthusiasm. And every time we would say something, he would always say yes to it. Yes, let's do that. Ooh, that's perfect. And that enthusiasm, I just absolutely adored. The one rule, and uh, it's obvious I won't explain it to you, is you don't date people in your trail crew because you're living pretty close to them for a long period of time. Now, um, trail crew was about from June to August in 2018. And at this point, um, I had spent the whole summer just totally in love with this guy. And he, we had talked about it in August, and we decided to hang out. And so after trail crew was over, we decided to raft down the Skagit River. <laughs> and we decided to have one car in Cedro Woolley and one car in Concrete. He parked his car and biked all the way up to Concrete to meet me at my car. And so I, he had a kayak that he strapped his bike to, and I had my packable um, raft. And we had ciders, we had all the snacks in the world, and the beautiful Skagit River that I'd never seen before. And it was braided, and it was beautiful, and sometimes we had to pop out of our rafts and scoot along because it was pretty, it was pretty low tide or low. And um, 
It was just gorgeous, and, and it was fun. We talked about everything according to music, you know, what our favorite what our favorite actors were, anything inspirational we had. It was just one of those heartfelt moments. So I was like, this is going to be my friend for a long time, and he still is. Um, and this trip was started at 2 p.m., right? So we were going to do it at, for like five hours. It was going to be a 20-mile-ish trip. Um, and we, and it ended up being later than we thought and it started to get dark and I was paddling next to him and I was like, it's getting pretty dark. Uh, how, how far are we? And he was telling me we had five miles to go. 20 minutes later, I asked, Oh, how far are we now? Five miles to go. Oh, okay. (laughs) And it was getting to the point where it started to get cloudy and cold. And I didn't pack anything for the cloudy and cold. I assumed we were going to get out in, you know, no time when the sun was still shining. And it started to get cloudy enough that I heard this noise in the background, this rumbling. And... (laughs) I realized it was all fun and games until Zeus himself pulled his wrath out and had a lightning bolt right in front of me. And, you know, I'm, it's in the water, right? And we have a bike strap that's a full metal piece of metal attached to his raft. And so we're a huge conductor <laughs> at this point. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so where are we? Are we close? And he's like, everything will be fine. I promise. Everything's fine. I don't, don't worry. And we had gone down where we, we saw a, um, a house with a bunch of fairy lights in it. And when you do long um, tr- uh, hikes like the PNT, there's these things called trail fairies. And they will host you. And they will house you. And they will help you out. Well, we saw this river fairy it seemed like, and because there was all twinkly lights and the, you know, thunderbolts were still coming down and I was crying and he was like, it's okay, everything's fine, you know, enthusiasm as per usual. And, um, I was like, nope, we're stopping. I don't care what you say. We're going to, we're going to stop. And he's like, oh, it's okay. And I was like, we are stopping here. And we ended up stopping and we went up to this little gravel uh, trail up to this area that had a bonfire filled with people, you know, 30, 40 plus years older than me. And there was three ladies who I remember were like the three oracles of my past, present and future, it seemed like. And one of them came up and was like, oh, hi, my name's Rosie. How are you? Where'd you, or did you come from the river? And we're like, yeah. And she's like, you're not the first one to come up here, okay? We are glad you stopped. And if you didn't stop, you'd probably be screwed because you have at least 10 more miles <laughs> to go until uh, Cedra Woolley. And I looked, at, I looked at Zeke and I was like, five miles, my butt. <laughs> Um, so we ended up staying with them, and they gave us Mai Tais. We sat around the fire. They clothed us. So I got this shirt from that, from, from that area, uh, from them, from Rosie specifically. And um, they had three dogs that we stayed overnight, and they all woke us up licking our faces. And um, it was, <laughs> it, it was um, a beautiful moment because I ended up, not kissing Zeke, and we didn't end up doing anything, but it was one of those moments where I appreciated the adventure and the laughter and the friends that we made on this 
um, on this river. And so the morning came and we had, you know, it was probably an hour left for us to <laughs> go to our exit. And we ended up going to our exit and having a great time. But that's, that's my story for story hour. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as you can tell, we have very adventurous storytellers in our community. No surprise there. We would like to remind you that on the first and third Tuesday of every month, we host a workshop to help you or your friends or anybody who needs it uh, extricate these stories, uh, get a chance to put them on their feet, find them in your body give you some tricks, uh, tips and tricks on how to maybe present them in front of a crowd if that's something that appeals to you. All of these stories that you're listening to were uh, generated through the Story Hour workshops, which is kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. And it makes us really excited when we get to see them on stage. We're always so proud. It is pride. I feel so excited for the storytellers. It's really exciting. You can sign up for those workshops at bellinghamstoryhour.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at bhamstoryhour and also on Facebook, Bellingham Story Hour. These stories were recorded live by Ron Warner at New Prospect Theater in downtown Bellingham, Washington. This podcast was recorded at Champion Street Sound Studios and was edited by Danielle Morgan Sharon and Paul Turpin. The music in this podcast is from the album Fiction by Anna Arvin, available on Bandcamp.